Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There are elections in Sweden on Sunday. The far-right Sweden Democrats are expected to make big gains. Sweden received the most asylum seekers in Europe practically during the 2015 immigration crisis. And we're going to talk about Swedish politics now with Leslie Nordstrom. She's a strategic communications consultant while living and working in Sweden. She served a number of roles in the leadership of the Liberal Party. And that's a centrist party in Sweden. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thank you for having me. Tell us something about the Sweden Democrats and where they come from. They're the far-right group that's surging in the polls. Uh, what's their background? So the Sweden Democrats, led by Yimmy Orkinson, they really come from, in the early 90s, a movement that was called uh, Keep Sweden Swedish. It was a neo-Nazi party that was aggressively far-right-wing. What Jimmy has done over the years is he's tried to legitimize his party. He's cleaned out uh, several of the politicians that were in his organization that said things that were a little too far right wing or maybe said some things that sounded more like Nazism than – This sounds familiar to many <laughs> other parties in Europe these days. They managed to put out the extremists and then – recraft a message. Exactly. So he has been effective at whitewashing his party, so to speak. They even changed their symbol to a pretty blue flower that is a symbol in Sweden for spring. Um, and then calling themselves the Sweden Democrats, they're really trying to position themselves not as neo-Nazis. That was their heritage. But now they've moved forward and it's all about protecting the folk hemet, uh, the welfare state of Sweden for all the elderly and the Swedes already living in Sweden. That sounds like an interesting pitch, doesn't it? We're protecting the welfare state for the Swedish people. It does. And then because of the refugee crisis that's happened in Europe and the record numbers that Sweden took, Sweden took second only to Germany. And of course, when you compare that per capita, it was a huge number for Sweden to take in. And of course, that's going to put some pressure on the system. You're going to suddenly have people showing up that don't speak your language, that aren't familiar with your culture. And that's why integration is such an important issue in this election. All the parties are talking about it because there have been some failures by all parties in integrating these new people into our communities. And the Sweden Democrats have taken full advantage of having a security, close the borders mentality that speaks to people that are afraid. They don't understand the new Swedes coming in and that they actually contribute a lot to the economy, which is an interesting point that we're not hearing enough. Now, the group that's been running Sweden for most of its recent history is the Social Democrats, and they're expected to lose members in parliament. And what's their counter argument to where these guys are coming from? Well, I think the Social Democrats that are a hard time, this is a party that for decades got 50 percent, 48 percent of the vote, and they could rule even without any coalition. Um, they had support parties and that was enough. So when the alliance took over or won the elections in 2006, that was a real turning point because the center right hadn't been able to kind of get it together um, for more than one term to affect change. But the Social Democrats, they've been in power for so long. They're not new. If you've had that many years to change the system, what are you going to do that's different now? I think they're in a tough position because all of this rhetoric about crime and violence and the new refugees coming in and the costs on the system and cues for health care, what they're not getting any credit for is the fact that it's going well for Sweden financially. They've come out of the financial crisis. Unemployment is at 6%, which is relatively low. 
So it might be, where's their charismatic leader? No offense to Stefan Levine, but where is that person that's going to lead that party um, and take them back to their former glory days? I'm not seeing it right now. How big a factor is the coalition mushiness there? Because there seems like there's been a lot of uh, places in Europe where the far right surges, the traditional powers who have been adversaries over the years come together and they create a mushy togetherness that doesn't mean anything to anybody. And that actually escalates the loss of faith in their side. You know, I'm glad you said that because when you're saying that I'm nodding, you're absolutely right. The Social Democrats, while they've been in power, they've had a minority government for the last four years. It could have been you know, sent to re-elections at any time had the alliance not supported them being in power as a minority government. So they haven't been able to get through the reforms that they might like to see done. Um, they are in government with the Green Party, with the left party supporting them. And what we're really seeing in Sweden right now is a move away from the large parties, a move away from the Social Democrats, away from the moderates, and a move towards the far right in the Sweden Democrats and the far left. You have the left party polling much better than it was in 2014. And you have sort of the center party and the liberals trying to get a little bigger piece of the pie, but they've already said they're not going to go into a government with the Social Democrats. And that makes this mushy coalition outcome uh, very, very difficult to predict. There's basically four things that could happen coming out of the elections on Sunday. One is that the Social Democrat coalition remains in power as a minority. That seems most likely. That seems to be what everybody's betting on. I think so. However, there is a chance that the alliance could come back. You have center and liberal are growing in the polls. And some people may decide to turn away from Sweden Democrats depending on what the rhetoric is at the very last minute. The other option is that you have moderates going towards the Sweden Democrats and have a sort of enemy of my enemy pact. I think that's very unlikely. Um, the center party and the liberal party would not support that. And so that makes that difficult. Or the fourth is that we have new elections. All right. They just couldn't broker a government because nobody will deal with the Sweden Democrats if they win a lot. It's really interesting. I was just watching the party leader debate. And it's like Jimmy Orkinson is on a whole nother playing field because no one really wants to interact with him. They're starting to debate him. But this was the established party's decision years ago that they would not engage with the Sweden Democrats. Now that's changed in the last election. They will debate them. They will talk. I mean, they're in parliament together. They have to work together to get through issues and get support for the budget because that's the other issue. Even if you start to build a government, if the budget doesn't pass, you don't have a government. Um, and it's a sensitive time in Sweden. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm talking with Leslie Nordstrom about Sunday's elections in Sweden. The far-right party in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats, is expected to make big gains while Sweden's traditional party, the Social Democrats, is going to lose seats, it looks like. Leslie is a strategic communications consultant, and she lived in Sweden for years and worked with Sweden's Liberal Party. In about 10 minutes, film critic Milos Stalik will give us some of his picks for the fall movie season, and he's going to recap the 2018 Telluride Film Festival, one of his favorite film fests. Uh, I wanted to say something about Russia and Russia's influence on the election. I've been reading some of the statistics, and it seems like their Twitter bots are active in support of Sweden Democrats. Absolutely. We've seen a 40 percent, I believe, spike in Twitter bots, uh, which is really disturbing. Sweden has a great media climate where you can really trust the newspapers and the reporters and the television news media. 
But increasingly, people are going to places like Twitter and Facebook to get their news, and that's where those bots are active. And an overwhelming majority of their accounts are supporting Sweden Democrats or supporting the even further right-wing parties that are neo-Nazi parties that are trying to nip at the heels of Sweden Democrats. And there's more than one that's further to the right than Sweden Democrats? There are two competing in the national elections, hoping at least to get – I think they don't think they'll get in parliament, but they want to get into maybe a local municipal board. Is there a dose of Euroscepticism in Sweden right now? Is that a factor here to gin up the ingredients for this kind of thing? Absolutely. Sweden Democrats want to pull out of the EU, as does the left party. I think especially with people are watching the Brexit and seeing how that goes. Sweden has never fully embraced the euro. We still have the Swedish kroner. So absolutely, Euroscepticism is at play. What would a Sweden look like if it pulled out of the euro? They are in the Schengen Agreement, and they're pretty serious about that kind of thing. Well, I think what's interesting, Sweden's not in the euro, but if they pulled out of the European Union, I think it would be a huge loss to the work that we've done and accomplished in in this experiment of the European Union. Sweden has a minister, Cecilia Malmström, in the European Parliament, and there's been a lot of great work that's been accomplished to help with visa reform, help with the free movement of people. These are things that help businesses and economies grow because when you're coming from Sweden, you have a less cost of goods and services if you're moving your stuff into Germany and vice versa. The problem is that argument doesn't really go home to a voter living in the countryside. Maybe they've had their benefits cut or they're standing in a long line in order to get a surgery that they need. Those intellectual arguments, even if they're valid, they don't speak to their personal lives. I understand one of the important issues in Sweden is the environment. And there's a Green Party in Sweden and that they could benefit from an interest in the environment. Well, this summer saw the hottest summer in Sweden in over 250 years since we've been measuring the temperatures in Sweden. The fields were drying up. Acres and acres of forests were burned down. It was extreme. Uh, When I was there, I couldn't believe how dry the grass was. Animals were having to be killed because they didn't have enough feed to feed them because of the low water levels. And so while this is a huge topic, you've got to remember Sweden is very advanced when it comes to the environment. There's a lot of policies already in place that help make Sweden one of the the champions of green living. So while I think this could be an issue and has definitely been in the forefront of the minds in a way that could help the Green Party on Sunday, I don't know if it's going to be the number one issue. How serious is the crime issue? I know that there was an Uzbek man who drove a car into people in Uh, Sweden, and that you could scare people if you wanted. Absolutely. That was only in 2017. So it's about a year ago that that happened, right down a major pedestrian street in Stockholm. I was just there this summer walking down that street, and now they've put up these large stone lions to prevent something like that from happening again. And it's a scar on the city. And I think what's lovely about Swedes is they say, We're not going to let this change us. We're going to continue to be an open society. Sweden has had violence like this happen before, and they always prioritize their open society and continuing to fight for those ideals. So in that, I hope that we see Swedes turning out on Sunday to vote for an open society, to vote to keep their country safe, not through scare tactics, but through laws that bring everyone up. If it's through helping those new immigrants learn Swedish – 
or get jobs, if it's about making sure that we find new ways to structure our healthcare system so you don't have to wait more than 90 days for an operation that you need today. I think that what's great about Sweden is the consensus building that they've had to do for so many years. And we really need to remind our politicians to do that hard work, to come to agreements that won't be popular in all of our parties, but will help us keep building the blocks of our welfare state and keep our economy growing. With this influx of asylum seekers, um, where have they gone? Have there been issues with their integration that are legitimate? Are there problems getting them acclimated? Do people see a real increase in crime? When I moved to Sweden as an American, I didn't have to learn Swedish in order to get my citizenship. I did learn Swedish because I wanted to become a part of Swedish society, civil society, and I wanted to take part. I wanted to make sure that I was contributing to my community. I think attitudes about learning Swedish, even though Swedes are such great at speaking English and a lot of other languages, have changed. And so now there's a greater emphasis on refugees and students coming in and immigrants coming in to learn the language, to learn the culture and learn the civics, which was something that was proposed by the liberals many years ago. And people thought that was a very racist policy to propose. It is difficult because Sweden has a very liberal society, a very progressive society, And you'll see all parties agreeing more or less to those policies. It's a question of where people want to spend the money and how they want to spend it. But I think that when you talk about crime in Sweden, what's interesting is almost every major political party changes the subject and goes back to integration. People see even crime as an integration failure rather than an actual issue with criminality. People are left outside the job market. They're left outside of civil society. And so we must find a way to bring them in. Does anybody have a good integration policy out there if they're all talking about it? I think because Sweden is made up of small parties, it's hard that one party gets it right. I think a lot of parties have some good ideas. And if they bring them together, I think they'll come up with something that works. But I think the issue is, and I think the liberals have a really great perspective on it, it's about making sure people understand when you become Swedish or when you enter the country that you have certain obligations. And when you have certain obligations, you also get certain rights. And what's really interesting about Sweden is that even non-citizens can vote in local elections. So a lot of parties are encouraging migrants, encouraging refugees to get registered and to come out on Sunday. They can't affect the parliamentary election, but they can affect their local boards. And so that's really exciting. Sweden has 86 percent voter turnout in the last election. People care. And we want to make sure that the people coming in also care and they want to contribute to Swedish society. But it's going to take education. Leslie Nordstrom has lived and worked in Sweden. She served as a number of positions in the Liberal Party, the youth organization there, and is now a strategic communications consultant. Thanks for joining us, Leslie, and getting us up to speed on what's happening in Sweden. Thank you. Film contributor Milo Stalik is just back from this year's Telluride Film Festival, and after the break, he'll give us some of the best and worst of the fest, and we'll get his picks for the fall movie season. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Milos is just back from the 45th Telluride Film Festival, one of your favorite film festivals on the planet. It's the best by far. Nothing touches it, including in height, because it's at uh, you know 7,500 feet altitude. So It's not easy to get to, but it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Uh, it sounds like everyone is talking about this film, Roma, as the best thing that came out of the festival. Well, it's quite an astonishing, very personal film by Alfonso Cuaron, um, Mexican director who works a lot in America. Very personal story of his growing up as a child in Mexico City in the 1970s, told through the eyes of an indigenous maid. Now, it was financed by Netflix? This is a Netflix feature? Yes. I mean, it's financed by Netflix, which apparently gave Quaron carte blanche to do what he wanted. I mean, it's an enormous production. It's in brilliant and beautiful black and white, shot by Quaron himself, widescreen. And it really gives us, through the story of a family with three kids, shot incidentally in the same house that Quaron lived in at the time, which of course is something else, but he managed to get back in there in order to shoot it there. Amazing. So pretty amazing. So it gives us, through the eyes of this indigenous maid who comes from an indigenous culture of Mexico, uh, and a, a portrait of a middle-class Mexican society and the political background, by the way, uh, of Mexico at the time, because it includes scenes and background of the Tlatelolco massacre in the 1970s. So it's really an w- immersion into the life of these people and the class structure and as, it's, as, as they are connected and separated. Well, it sounds like it's fantastic, and uh, it's got, got Oscar buzz already and everything? It's got Oscar buzz. It's a film that fills you with—it has heart. It has a lot of emotion. The performance by Yalitza Aparicio, who plays the maid, who, by the way, is a schoolteacher. She's not an actress. It's just astonishing. It reminds you of the performances— uh, in Italian neorealism, films like The Bicycle Thief, films that absolutely connect, you, know, you are connected to, to and really feel for this girl as she goes through her life story. Well, we'll all be looking for Roma as it comes to theaters near us. And how is the talk about Netflix and the other digital people who are getting into the film business being digested at Telluride? Well, I mean, they are big players now. Netflix is a big player. Amazon is a big player. Hulu is about to get into film production. You know, there are talks of uh, Apple and other people starting and getting into film production. So obviously, this online streaming download companies, companies that come from completely someplace else, are now a huge presence, partially because they have a huge amount of money. Netflix apparently left Quaron pretty much alone. You know, they let him make the film without interfering too much. So so they let him make a film that he really wanted to make that was very personal to him. So that's very unusual in the first place. They are likely to be here. The only big question now is resolving this issue between the films opening and playing in theaters versus just streaming online. And there are rumors about this, about that both Amazon and Netflix, for example, are shopping for a theater chain. So they very soon you might be seeing Netflix and Amazon, which of course does do dis- theatrical distribution, also uh, much more in theaters. Well, they've got the money. They could just buy out theater chains with, a, with without you know feeling any pain. Right. And right now, money rules... 
uh, you know, and it's it's all about that. Uh, you know, a lot of people are finding work because they're able to sell or work for Netflix or for Amazon. So it's kind of a good time production-wise. Um, and we'll see what happens. But it's a it's a big moment because obviously the theatrical scene is changing, and it's it's really a moment, uh, a big moment in cinema history. Well, what are theaters for these days? Because it seems like only young people go to the multiplex and they watch these blockbuster films, and that is the theater business well, now. And I had a big conversation in Telluride with an Academy uh, Board of Governors member who said to me that the reason for the most popular film category, which the Academy has now set aside or delayed implementing, was because theater owners because the Academy is all about recognizing and celebrating the theatrical experience, which is really great. But the theater owners are complaining that the only people who come to theaters in large numbers are people who are going to see the comics-derived superhero movies, i.e. young people. And the films which the Academy ends up celebrating, like Moonlighting or smaller films, really get very, very small theatrical audiences. So this was a cave-in to the theater industry, to the, to the theater owner's industry, saying we had to give recognition to, 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 to mainstream, large superhero movies, which, of course, they've back, backed away from because of the huge backlash which they received. Well, what's Netflix's game here? If they don't really want to put superhero movies in theaters... And they think, well, I can get everybody who doesn't go to theaters with more art house fare and more dramas and more interesting series. Because we're going to be talking about Netflix and it's going to drive people to Netflix. And maybe people are not going to end up watching Roma, which is to their detriment, I might say. But they're going to watch some other thing that Netflix produced. And so they're, and, you know, they're going to pay Netflix money to go there. I mean, so it's all about brand, re- brand recognition. Uh, and grabbing eyeballs. The battle is for eyeballs. I'm talking with film contributor Milos Stalik about the 45th Telluride Film Festival, and we were just chatting about Roma, financed by Netflix there. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about a film that wasn't there, that was at the Venice Film Festival and is getting written up a lot, and that's American Dharma. And it's a film by Earl Morris, and it's one of his classic interview films, and it's with Steve Bannon, who there is obviously so much controversy about every time he appears or doesn't appear at a place. There is controversy. The New Yorker just uh, Give, gave, yanked him from disinvited their, him. Disinvited him. <laughs> so, uh, w- and this film did not show at Telluride because they're uncomfortable with Steve Bannon. I don't know why they didn't show in Telluride, but even though Tom Luddy, who is the uh, founder, one of the founders of Telluride, has a very long association uh, with Errol Morris. I mean, they've shown many, many, many uh, Errol Morris films. And in fact, Steve Bannon, apparently the film bug bit Steve Bannon at Telluride because he did go there. And this was research by Telluride. He did buy a pass. He did see Fog of War, which Errol Morris made. Um, uh, and the McNamara uh, film. Robert McNamara. And uh, that's what inspired Steve Bannon, that he should go into media and that he should make movies, which, of course, he then did. Um, And Bannon tells him this in American Dharma. And in American Dharma, Steve Bannon says to Errol Morris, it's your fault because <laughs> you, you are the one who lit the spark, so to speak. And now, of course, the film was shown in Venice. Uh, big discomfort. Venice trying to prove that they did not officially invite Steve Bannon, that he just happened to show up. <laughs> and so they, therefore they cannot 
physically kick him out. And in fact, Errol Morris going on the defensive saying, well, I interviewed him. That doesn't mean that I agree with him. Well, that's the point of the film, it sounds like, is their disagreement in there. That's where the tension comes from. Yes, but I mean, the, you know, the other side of it is, is, is do you give, you know, at what point do you, you, give, you get manipulated yeah. and do you give a platform to somebody whose views are so extreme? All right. Tough nut to crack there. And we will not get it done in this segment. But let's move over to something beautiful that you saw. Uh, you saw a silent film from Germany in 1920 that wowed the crowd. You know, this is the reason for me to go to a film festival like Telluride to see something which is going to be absolutely a once-in-a-lifetime experience which can never, ever be repeated again. And the small number of people who ventured out to this oddly titled two-part, two-and-a-half-hour film called Christian von Schaffe by Urban God, made in Germany in 1920, you know, is, is a, this incredible experience. It's a very long, beautifully, strangely modern film. I mean, it absolutely reeks modernity, the way that it's shot, the way that it's staged, the, the, the very large assembly, the way that the camera moves around. And it's an interesting subject. It's about a, a, a son of a very, very wealthy family who is very unhappy with his wealth. And so he wants to give it away, and he wants to find a way to to dispossess, to be dispossessed. And it ends very tragically. It ends in an incredible scene, which is very Dostoevskyan, as his shirt is ripped off and he's standing half naked, pinned against the wall by the crowd that just wants to 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 to, to get at him. And his arms are outstretched in a Christ-like crucifixion. Wow. And then the film just boom ends. This was accompanied by the, one of the chief accompanists from the Pordenone Silent Film Festival in Italy, which is the great festival of silent films anywhere in the world, introduced by Paolo Kerkiusai, who is the co-director of the festival. This pianist, Stephen Horn, who played the piano, played the accordion, played a number of percussion instruments. When that film was over, that final scene, everyone in the audience just stood up and gave him a five-minute rousing ovation. I mean, it was a moment to remember. That does sound beautiful. And as a fan of silent film, uh, I certainly encourage people to get out and see them. I just went and saw Rin Tin Tin at the Chicago Silent Film Festival. It was fantastic. Everything that was to be ever done in cinema was already done by silent in silent film, the greatest era of movie making ever. And to be dis sadly, we've lost a lot of it just because of lack of preservation. But what is left is still a signal to, to the most incredible experiences you can have in cinema. Talking with film contributor Milo Stalik about the 45th uh, Telluride Film Festival, and we're moving on to a couple other films. I was impressed that Hugh Jackman depicted uh, the presidential candidate Gary Hart in the new film by Jason Reitman, Frontrunner. Yeah, Frontrunners, which is going to open here, I think, in November, uh, is really a very, very good film, not only because of the Gary Hart story, which is interesting in itself, because a very smart candidate obviously knew his issues, was very articulate, was handsome, was young enough, and then, of course, destroyed and uh, politically. And it has incredible parallels to today, of course, because we have a president who has been accused of similar kinds of things that Gary Hart was accused of. 
he pulled out from the election. And what makes this film really interesting is not only Hugh Jackman's really impeccable performance, but also the way that Jason Reitman is able to create this atmosphere of the politicians, of these late night drinking sessions, of the relationship between the press and the politics and how they are intertwined, the way that the politicians try to manipulate the press or a specific reporter in this case from the Washington Post. It's 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 really fascinating way to get get into this and to give us this moment, which in some ways resonates very much into today. Frontrunner, the Gary Hart story in the 1988 presidential nomination campaign. Uh, I also saw the film Ida, which was such a sensation uh, a few years ago. Uh, the filmmaker Pavel Pavlikovsky has a new film, Cold War, also shot in black and white. It's part of, I, I think he's doing a trilogy of films that uh, are post-World War II and nature. Yeah, this is an incredible love story or sad love story, tragic love story. You know, people, a, a couple, I mean, a, a young, late, young, young woman who is accepted into the National School of Folklore, which does these folkloric or learns these folkloric dances and music singing, uh, goes on tour, national tour, symbol of Polish nationalism after the Second World War, and her music teacher, who have a very passionate love affair. Then they're separated by the wall because he decides he, well, he wants to leave. He does emigrate. He gets into West Germany, then into France. Off and on, they see each other, but still they're separated by politics. And when they are finally reunited, it, of course, becomes very, very tragic. So it's, I think it's a story that's really happened many, many times of how and even today, you could put into a different context with anybody who emigrates and who is separated from their family of how geography, politics really divides human relationships. We'll be looking for Cold War from Pavel Pavlikovsky, a terrific director. I really have enjoyed his past And bought films. by Amazon. Bought by Amazon. <laughs> Those guys got everything. Uh, I, one of the other films that had a little controversy attached to it was First Man, a film about Neil Armstrong, the guy who was the first man on the moon. What could possibly be controversial about a heartwarming story about the guy who lands on the moon? Well, directed by Damien uh, Chazelle, you know, who did was uh, almost won an Oscar, the uh, Best Picture Oscar for La La Land. Um, and a film in the same style, kind of very impressionistic, uh, bunches of scenes, uh, Neil Armstrong getting on the moon, very high tech, lots of really brilliant special effects, et cetera, and, and running across a very opportunistic politician, uh, Marco Rubio, who just went out after the film saying that he did not show the, the actually the planting of the American flag on the moon. And therefore, this is the sacrilegious act that Damien uh, Chazelle committed. Uh, and Marco Rubio, without having seen the film, by the way, very often for people who criticize this way, uh, went out after him to the point that Neil Armstrong's family had to come out in defense and saying, hey, it's a really good film. It really tells the story. And Marco Rubio is not a filmmaker. Damien Chazelle is. <laughs> Who would think that nationalism and imperialism would, would come into play in this kind of situation? You know, it's a way to get noticed. It's, a, it's, it's really a way to get on the national radar, and it's a way to say that you are more, more a, a bigger patriot than Donald Trump. Film contributor Milos Stalik, thanks for joining us and telling us about the 45th Telluride Film Festival. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jerome.
Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with our global citizen, Nari Safavi, and we'll talk about some films that are out and a terrific hosta benefit coming up in Woodstock. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here with a list of suggestions. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Well, the first thing we're going to talk about is something, uh, a segment I was going to do yesterday on the Global Activism Series, but we kind of got nixed out by the Supreme Court nomination hearings. And I wanted to mention it because of the great contribution uh, the people have made here. And Rich and uh, Susan Eyre are people who are um, nursery owners. They own Rich's Fox Willow Pine Nursery in Woodstock, Illinois, and he has the largest selection of conifers you can possibly ever imagine. He also has... 200 varieties of hostas, and he's been selling hostas uh, for the last 25 years or so at an annual sale and ongoing on an ongoing basis mm-hmm. and putting the proceeds to terrific things like Mano a Mano, an organization in Bolivia that's doing social work, and he's had a 50-year commitment to Heifer International. Um, really remarkable contributions that he's made. He's an ex-Peace Corps volunteer in Bolivia, and he's gone out of his way to help other people after that experience. And uh, over the years, they've they've sold like half a million dollars in hostas and yeah. are, are, are doing a great job. And their last benefit, they're going to retire, go to New Mexico and put their feet up after doing a, a great job on nursing and uh, helping people. And so they're going to have their final Hosta benefit tomorrow, and it's September 8th there at 9 a.m. at Fox Willow Pine Nursery in Woodstock. Woodstock's a great place to be. Great farmer's market on Saturday, too. It's it's real close by. Yeah, very admirable commitment, uh, 50 years or so, uh, to Bolivia and was a Peace Corps volunteer over there 50 years ago, five decades ago. Checks all the boxes for me. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to interview him and and bring back the interview. Absolutely. That sounds great. And put it on the show at a later date. What else is going on out there, Yeah, besides going to Bolivia, we're also going to go to Uptown in Chicago. And the Garden Walk is happening this weekend, too. Tomorrow, September 8th, 1 p.m., Clarendon Park Community Center on North Clarendon Avenue. So that's another thing to check out this weekend. Yeah, I've been on the Uptown Garden Walk, and it's fantastic. Uh, it, they change it every year, and this year they've got uh, emphasis on community, and they're going to visit some of their finer trees in the community, and they're also going to do some history and talk about um, some of the kind of historical plans for a green Uptown. So. I hope people get it together and can attend one of the last garden walks of the season. There aren't a lot more left in in the fall, and it's the Uptown Garden Walk. There's an Eventbrite uh, site that people can check out and 
learn about the third annual Uptown Garden Walk. Yeah, and uh, and the last uh, uh, event that I want to just mention is uh, we're going to Japan on this emulating a Japanese uh, practice, International Forest Bathing Day. Uh, which is something you turned me on to, and I was really uh, amazed to find out what what traditions are involved with this. Well, anyone who walks around the forests here, uh, you're thinking specifically in the Northwest, would find large groups of Japanese people there. And they are forest bathing together, and it's a practice that um, is well known in Japan, and it, it's meant to reduce stress, and it, it is a guaranteed thing to reduce stress. All the studies say if you go out in the forest and enjoy nature, you are going to reduce your stress level, and that's what these people are doing, and they have a certified nature and forest therapy guide at the Morton Arboretum who does this on a regular basis with people, mm-hmm. takes them out into the Morton Arboretum grounds, and mm-hmm. you decompress. And they're going to be celebrating International Forest Bathing Day at the Morton Arboretum tomorrow. 1 p.m., there's a a tour, and you can check their website, and they do it on a regular basis. What I would like to say will be an immersive experience probably, and you can keep your clothes on from what I understand, right? (laughs) It's not that kind of bathing, (laughs) Nara. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, But last but not least, we're going to go to the interiors of your mind and your psyche. And uh, an interesting event going on uh, this weekend over at the Gene Susco Film Center, Roots Grow Together workshop, Relationships in Today's World. And it's sort of a film-based approach uh, to dealing with a lot of uh, mental issues. And we have a couple of interesting guests who are who have put that workshop together. Hart Ginsberg is here. He is the founder of Digital Tapestries and a licensed clinical professional counselor. Great to see you, Hart Ginsberg. Yeah. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you. I want to thank you both for making such a wonderful show. This is actually, you guys are my therapists. Oh. <laughs> so always listening to you guys, listening to NPR. So I don't want to deal so with nice. the liability issues okay. of that. <laughs> Do either of you take insurance? <laughs> and uh, Hart is also a filmmaker, and his new film is Roots Grow Together, and it is showing at the Cisco Film Center along in this event on Sunday. And also with us is Dr. Porter Green, who specializes in working with transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. Great to meet you. Thanks Great for joining us. Glad to be here. Um, tell us about your project, Hart, because uh, this is a fairly unusual yes. way of counseling, but you've, right. you've gone into film. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's been an interesting journey. You know, I work at, um, at a place called Asian Human Services in Uptown, right. and we service um, refugees and immigrants and people from all over the world. And I just really love working with them, and I'm inspired by our clients and also our staff are very international. And just by working there, I just saw the beauty of international languages, international people and their values, um, which was a very big discrepancy to what I hear from the higher powers in politics. (laughs) So it it kind of inspired me to try to work on films that try to highlight the beauty of international languages, cultures, and ways of thinking. Um, so that kind of brought us to this topic of Roots Grow Together. And this specific film, it um, it incorporates, uh, it's it's a kind of like a sound poem, in a, or a silent poem, yeah. silent film in a way. And it incorporates poetry and yes. from poetry from different cultures. Right. Uh, and explain what you're doing there. Yeah. 
That's a hard question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish I knew what I was doing. <laughs> um, yeah, because so much of our work, you know, is unconscious. But um, um, definitely, my my intention is to try to create really rich short films that evoke um, meditative responses that broaden people's perspective on international and multicultural. Right. Um, and in terms of poetry. Um, that's you know these these short films we do start with a book that we work on. They're images we have taken from Japan to Chicago, very urban style shots, and then we make that into like a story. And from that, we get ideas for a narrative film. Right. So it's, that's kind of like our process. Right. Um, yeah. And then we work with other artists to kind of bring that out. Um, so it's, our work is very collaborative. Yeah. You're going to have a panel discussion after yeah. the, the the film? Explain what you're doing. Yeah, and we have Dr. Green here um, from Live Oak. We work with Live Oak as well. Mm-hmm. They've been very um, supportive of our work, and we're supportive of their work. Sure. Um, so we hope to, um, by having somebody like Dr. Green there, we can get another perspective, you know, being mm-hmm. a psychologist and you're focusing mm-hmm. on working with more um yeah. Live Oak really focuses on the intersectional intersectional perspective on life. So we, we all are existing in a context of different statuses, you know, where we have more or less power in society, different cultural backgrounds that we come from, different places. And all of those things work together to sort of shape our experience and our narrative and how we make relationships, um, which is super relevant to the film and to like how you look at psychology, I think. Dr. Yes. Porter, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, I'm seeing a lot more uh, film-based kind of approach to therapy mm-hmm. and dealing with <clears throat> mental issues. Uh, got invited to a couple of them uh, just this week, uh, and they were very interesting exercises. Is that a trend that uh, people uh, who are looking at constructing their own narratives, you know, while dealing with mental health issues and trying to the creative outlet that might be therapeutic. Is that a trend going on right now? I think so. I think the the sort of advent of YouTube and streaming and all of the different ways of accessing media and creating media without having like a big budget behind you, for example, has allowed people to tell their own story in very visceral and personal ways and to move beyond just the language of narration and into embodiment of narration or art to share things that they can't really verbalize the same way they would. Wow. Is it helpful for people to be recognized like that? Is that part of the therapy portion of it? Well, sure. I mean, being validated for your experience is very a basic human need. A lot of people, especially dealing with chronic mental illness, are told that they're a problem or that they're sick or that they're damaged in some way and they can't have a meaningful life because our, our sort of model has been you know, to put them aside and take them out of society. But then why can't they? Every person deserves to have a, a powerful and meaningful life that they sort of have control over and they're validated in their experience and told their experience is true and others can resonate with their experience. You know, it seems like almost everybody has a mental health issues or knows somebody very close to them who is mental health issues these days. It's not a secret. It's, a, right. it's, it's, it's out there. It's everybody. It's still very stigmatized, though. I mean, we still have a lot of sort of cultural loading about how it's bad or weak to have mental illness when, in fact, something like 80% of adults at some point in their life would qualify for a diagnosable mental illness, whether they get help or not. So that's most of us. Um, what kind of uh, conversation do you hope to have, Hart, on, on Sunday? Yeah. 
kind of this kind of conversation, um, just open and reflective. And I think our intention mm-hmm. is to take mental health out of mental health and bring it to a public place like Gene mm-hmm. Siskel. Right. Um, and uh, not simply talk about mental health as mental health, but just those underlying processes of like forgiveness, right. acceptance. Uh, because I, Dr. Green and I were talking before the show started that we thought actually a lot of mental health conditions seem to come from societal effects. You know, we, we should hide our emotions. We should, mm-hmm. um, and we want to create a platform um, for the opposite, for this kind of conversation we're having here today, which is open and reflective. And the film is just used to try to evoke um, these kind of deeper thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that answer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a, you know, there is. There is so little space uh, in our public conversations about where people can really bring out their interior into the conversation and to provide that safe context and ambiance for those kinds of conversations to happen is probably half of the battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I have seen just these last few weeks, having gone to some of these events, seeing after a video presentation or a film presentation, documentary presentation, how all of a sudden people's minds are opened up and they are all of a sudden more prone to converse about the issue. While before seeing the film, everybody is like in their own little shells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really, uh, it's, it's an interesting way to, to, uh, to deal with this. And and of course, the people who were having the mental health issues and and have been a part of the creative process of putting that final product out there, they're of course very happy to see that everybody else is now can relate to them in a different mm-hmm. way, and they don't have to have very difficult individual conversations with several hundred people and it's like in one hour all of a sudden 200 people know what was going on inside your brain <laughs> all that time <laughs> so that's uh, and that's that's a fascinating approach i wonder if you think that having more open discussions about this will lead to people getting better mental health care because it seems like the way people stumble onto mental health care can sometimes be um uh, you know, not the easiest way. They kind of stumble into one person or they, you know, they don't know exactly where to go and how to, uh, how to address this. Uh, you know, if, if they have more options and have a little more open dialogue about it, they can get to the appropriate person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that hard? Sure. I mean, people don't always realize, but to get a good therapy relationship, it's a matching process. You know, the, the person that's sitting on each side of that conversation needs to sort of work together and have a good connection. And there's so many different types and styles and ways of accessing therapy. I mean, there's arts and music and body and talk, hypnosis, all different sorts of things that are very valuable and helpful for people. But it can, to answer your question, it can be a very confusing process. One of the films that I just saw this week called Breaking the Silence by a friend of mine at Dara Sanandaji. And he also puts it out there as to initially when he was dealing with these issues, the panoply of the options Mm -hmm. he was trying to deal with. Some people were MDs, psychiatrists, some people were PhDs, some people were art therapists, some people were MD, PhDs. And and he talks like to 20 different 
professionals <laughs> that he had to deal with and make choices amongst them. I felt sorry for him just trying to go through those choices and try to figure out which which one is really telling him something that could help him. It was really a, a, a it, it's tough enough to deal with the disease and its symptoms and all that. And then also the options that are available to you can be very confusing as to where you can go with this. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, you can go forest bathing if you want. You can start there. But, uh, you know, but obviously, I, I think that's really hard for people who are suffering to, to find the right person. It is. It is. It's very, How very did you difficult. find your specialty, Dr. Porter? You're, you're someone who's uh, specializing in transgender issues and uh, non gender nonconforming issues. Well, it started for me actually when I was in my undergrad. Um, I've been studying psychology forever, it seems. But um, I did a. I was doing a report in a class, and we had to pick a population that had like a, a high need and was in, had a lot of struggles. And I picked that population, and like coming to understand how negatively the medical community regarded transgender people at the time and how much injustice they suffered really spoke to me. So I pr- I learned more and learned more, um, and then moved into the community in more real ways. And, there you are. There I am. Well, it's great to meet you. And uh, Dr. Porter Green specializes in uh, transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. And Hart Ginsburg is the founder of Digital Tapestries and is a licensed clinical professional counselor. And you can meet them on Sunday at the Gene Siskel Film Center. And they're, um, they're showing their new film, uh, Roots Grow Together, Hart's new film. And they're having a panel discussion and a workshop. And it's from 11 to 2 p.m. And that's at the Gene Siskel Film Center on Sunday. Great to meet you both. Nari, great to have another fine weekend passport with you. It was a privilege to be here. Thanks, Thanks. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.